So it's always good to start uh, something like this with a little minor confession. I'm about 10 years behind probably, I think, the rest of the world, but I read the Harry Potter series for the first time this summer, by, by which I mean I actually read the entire series in three weeks. Um, it was wonderful. Um, so it's, it's been fresh on my mind, and uh, so when Brad was talking about community and relationships and friendships, I think there's some really great examples from that series that come up and that were fresh in my mind, having just read it. So I'd like to start this morning actually with an example from the life of Harry and one of the other characters who I will, whose name I'm going to butcher repeatedly because I just read them. I did not watch the movies. When you read books, you can pronounce things however you want. And so in my mind, it's Hermione. To the rest of you, it's something else. That's fine. We'll figure it out. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, so at this point in... Yeah, that. That. Thank you. Um, at this point in the story, they are about two months into life at a new... For those of you who haven't read it, they're two months into life at a new boarding school, which in this case is like a wizard boarding school, but go, go get it, that's okay. Um, and they're still trying to figure out like, who their friends are and what it means to be at boarding school, and I think they're like 12 or 11 or 12 or 13 or something like that. So they're in a, they're in a class learning something, something about charms. Um, and here we go. It was, it was very difficult. Harry and Seamus swished and flicked, but the feather they were supposed to be sending skywards just lay on the desktop. Seamus got so impatient that he prodded it with his wand and set fire to it. Harry had to put it out with his hat. These things happen when you're at wizard boarding school. Ron, at the next table, wasn't having much more luck. Uh, wow, I picked some really great phrases here. Ready? Wingardium Lavosia. It's a, you know, magic phrase. He shouted, waving his long arms like a windmill. You're saying it wrong, Harry heard Hermione snap. It's Wingardium Lavosa. Make the gar nice and long. You do it then, if you're so clever, Ron snarled. So she rolled up the sleeves of her gown, flicked her wand, and said, Wingardium Lavosia. Their feather rose off the desk and hovered about four feet above their heads. Oh, well done, cried Professor Flitwick, clapping. Everyone see here? She's done it. Ron was in a very bad temper by the end of class. It's no wonder no one can stand her, he said to Harry as they pushed their way out of the crowded corridor. She's a nightmare, honestly. Someone knocked into Harry as they hurried past him. It was Hermione. Harry caught a glimpse of her face and was startled to see that she was in tears. I think she heard you. So, said Ron, but he looked a bit uncomfortable. She must have noticed she has no friends. She didn't turn up for the next class and wasn't seen all afternoon. On their way down to the Great Hall for the Halloween feast, Harry and Ron overheard someone else telling someone else that she was crying in the girls' bathroom and wanted to be left alone. So Ron looked even more awkward at this, but a moment later they entered the Great Hall where the Halloween decorations put it all out of their minds. So there's your classic, awkward, middle school, you know, being 12 or 13, someone points out that you have no friends, and it actually might be true, and you have no friends. And it sounds awful, um, and, and it's also an imaginary story. Um, but I think it's also uh, re reflective and true of a lot of things in our life, right? There, there are times where we just don't have the friendships or the community that we really wish we could have, and it's a journey, it's a process. It takes time to connect to people in the way we would like to. Um, so I want to I wrap this up with looking at, at three pages later, um, because when you're in an imaginary middle school world, things can solve themselves in three pages. Um, so in the next three pages, I'm going I'm to skip a little bit. Um, they, somehow they managed, uh, Harry and Ron lock a troll in, a bathroom, in the bathroom that Hermione is um, crying in, and it almost kills her, and then they somehow magic, magic, magically slash very luckily save her, and then she has to in turn save them from the teachers who are going to get them in trouble. So as they're leaving the bathroom, Ron says, well, well, it was good of her to get us out of trouble like that, Ron admitted. Mind you, we did save her. She might not have needed saving if we hadn't locked the thing in with her, Harry reminded him. 
So they get back to their common room, and it was packed and noisy, and everyone was eating the food that had been sent up. Hermon, however, stood alone by the door waiting for them. There was a very embarrassed pause. Then, none of them looking at each other, they all said thanks and hurried off to get plates. But from that moment on, she became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. <laughs> so when you think about how it, how it, what it looks like to make friends and connect with people and be a part of something, you should look for trolls. So obviously that's a particular example from an imaginary middle school life. Um, I think there's some themes that are really real to that in real life um, and also in, in our lives as adults and not necessarily just as children. Um, so for instance, let me give you an example from in 2008. I was in the midst of a significant time of transition. I was finishing the job that I'd had for four years out of college. Um, I knew I was looking for a new job. I wanted to do something with a slightly different focus. Um, and I knew that I wanted to move somewhere else uh, for a variety of reasons. So at that point, I had like, endless opportunities. I could have moved anywhere, um, except there were two non-negotiables that I had as well. One, I had to get a job somewhere. I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I had no money. I couldn't just move somewhere. So I had to actually have a job when I got there. So that was non-negotiable number one. Secondly, I only wanted to move to a place where I already had a, good, a few good friends, a, a base of a community to get started with. When I had moved to Connecticut in 2004 and done this four-year job that I was there for, I didn't know anyone. Um, in fact, the only people I knew was the, the handful of coworkers that I had. Um, and I found that that was not particularly a whole lot of fun. It was, it was really challenging. It took a long time to settle in. Um, I, was a, I was working for a campus ministry that had five staff people in the entire state of Connecticut. And they were awesome. And they were great people that I got to know. But we, uh, Connecticut's not a particularly large state. Um, but it is large enough that if there are only five of you in the whole state, there's not quite enough proximity to really see each other frequently enough to feel like that's your community. And so it took a while to really settle in and connect with folks. And at the same time, I had great friends from high school and college, and not one of them ever, I think to this day, lived in Connecticut. So um, at some point, so, so I spent a lot of time visiting friends elsewhere and driving back to Connecticut. And it was, I, remember, I don't remember exactly when this was, but at some point, two years into living in Connecticut, I was driving back from visiting some friends in Boston. And I remember this because it was the first time I was driving back thinking, oh, you know, this is okay. I saw some great friends, I had a great weekend, and now I'm going back home. Previous to that, it was always like, oh, this really sucks. I had a great weekend, I had really, a really wonderful life-giving time with all these great friends, and now I'm driving back to this place where I don't have friends yet, right? So it took like two years to settle in, and therefore, because of all that, when I was moving again in 2008, it was really important to me um, to be sure that I was moving somewhere where I had some kind of really deep, life-giving friendships that I could at least start to have a community off of. And that's a lot of what drew me to Philly in the first place. So I think, again, community relationships, um, deep friendships, I think they're really important to all of us. Developing identity and developing community is a key focus of life. And in particular, it's a key focus of adolescent development, which is probably why it comes up in Harry Potter um, and many other stories like that. Um, but beyond that, I think it's a really important consideration for most of us almost all the time across, across the whole of our lives. So we're going to look at that this morning. Before we go farther, though, I do want to add a little bit of a caveat or a disclaimer. Um, there are also some good reasons to leave community or to leave a place where you have really good friendships. So I don't want to sound like I'm making the argument here that this should be your top priority in life. I think it's really important, um, but I think there are also times when you need to prioritize other things and you have to make hard decisions. So actually, when I moved to Philly, I had lots of really good friends in Boston and more really good friends in Boston than I had in the Philly area. But I felt uh, through reflection and through prayer, uh, like God has, was telling me to go somewhere where 
I had some good friendships, but where there was also space to grow and to meet new people and to have uh, new, new growth opportunities and, and new things that would come from that. So um, all of that is to say I'm going to talk a lot about this morning about growing and getting deeper with community and hear that knowing that there are also times when we're called to maybe walk away from that when we have it in, in some places. So the question I want to focus on this morning is, I think, a key question for a lot of us. And it's how to get from the edge of a community where you know people and they smile and they shake your hand and you, you know, you've, you've met some people into the, the center of that community where you're really a deep part of it, where you know people really well, where they know you really well. So think about it this way. If you're new at a job, hopefully, you go in, you introduce yourself, everybody shakes your hand, they say they're so happy to have you here, it's wonderful, people are really nice, it's your first day, it's your first week. But how do you actually become a part of it? How do you get to know them well enough that you actually either you know the inside jokes or you know when to ask for help and when not to ask for help? Or you know, when you're new anywhere, where you're at a new church, same questions. If you're in a new city, same questions. Or I think if you're at the heart of a community and you've been a part of it and it's been wonderful and suddenly a bunch of your friends move away or suddenly um, a bunch of your friends all get married or they all have kids at the same time or football season starts and they're all talking about football and you don't really care. Um, <laughs> Suddenly, you find yourself, again, on the edges of the community, and everyone else is at the heart of it. Um, and so, as, as, you, as Brad mentioned, one of the themes of this series is transience. Uh, people move a lot in our society, and people's um, kind of stages of life change a lot. And so because of that, I think we actually face this question a lot more often than we would probably want to. We find ourselves frequently floating around the edge, wishing that we were in the center. So um, what I want to think about is, what does it take to get to the center of a community? And not the center in terms of the center of attention, um, but the center in terms of being at the heart or the core, truly and authentically feeling like you're actually a part of everything that's going on, being in really deep. Um, so kind of the difference, as Brad, Brad mentioned again, there's a sense of broad community, especially with technology, it's very easy to stay connected to people who are all over the world, which is wonderful. But I think there's also a sense of depth that uh, we really want and really desire, and so that's what we're going to talk about. So to answer that, we are going to look at a uh, slightly obscure and very short story from Scripture this morning that I think has some, actually some really good insight to us. So we're going to begin at the end. So actually, don't, don't open your bulletin and don't start reading it, because I want to start at the end, and I don't want you to ruin the fun of starting the end. So I want to start at the end, um, because I think it actually provides a really compelling vision for us of where we want to be. And I want to look at that vision before we get into how um, this person got there. So this starts about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death. Paul and his companion Silas, they're traveling around the Middle East and Europe. They're talking to people about Jesus. They're starting new startup churches, um, new communities, and all kinds of totally ridiculous things happen to them, um, one of which is they get put in jail and then they get miraculously freed. And so the end of this story happens right as they're miraculously released. It's uh, a very intense story leading up to it, um, and then we're going to jump off in verse 40 at the very end. Um, and so it's, it'll pop up here on the screen. After Paul and Silas... Uh, came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. So we're going to talk about Lydia this morning, and what it is in her life that gets her to the place where she's actually hosting the entire group, right? So if you think about um, folks like Paul and Silas, they've just had this very intense experience. They were in prison, they miraculously got out, um, and they know that they have to leave town. And whenever you're leaving or you're moving or something like that, right, you go to the place where all the, you want to see, you want some closure, you want to see all the important people one last time. And so where are all the people who's a part of this community that's really important to Paul and Silas? They're all at Lydia's house. And so what we're going to look at is how does Lydia end up being the host, the heart of this community? Well, so there are exactly three verses that introduce us to Lydia. 
and give us as much of the story about her background as we're going to know. So this morning, we are going to wring every piece of wisdom that we can out of these three verses. So we'll start in verse 12. Um, feel free to dig into your bulletins, um, and we'll learn a little about where Lydia is coming from. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And that's it. That's all we know about Lydia. And then she pops up in verse 40 at the end, and then that's really it. We never hear what happens with her again. So here we're picking up Paul and Silas. Um, Luke, who is traveling with them and is uh, considered traditionally the author of Acts, is probably what's making it the we. So they are traveling around. They're following what they understand um, to be the Spirit's guidance, which in this particular case, they actually saw a vision of a man asking them to come to Macedonia or Philippi and help them. And so they come to town, and they spend several days there until the Sabbath. So that's a fancy way of saying they got to town on Wednesday or Thursday and waited until it was Saturday. On the Sabbath, they do this standard and proper religious thing, and they go to the local Jewish service. Um, So a quick background side note to understand how we know that's what they're doing. Um, It's a very small local Jewish group, so they haven't actually built a synagogue yet in the town. And therefore, in towns where they don't have a synagogue, um, what they choose to do, they traditionally did, was meet for prayer outside the city by the river somewhere there was clean water for a variety of traditions. So this tells us a few key things um, that the text, I think, kind of assumes we would know. One, that Lydia and the people who are with her are Jewish, um, and that helps us understand what it means when they say she's a worshiper of God. That's what they meant. And second, because this was kind of curious to me, um, Paul and Silas actually have really good reasons for thinking that if they go out of town to this place by the river, they'll find a group of people praying there. This is not one of the miraculous examples of guidance that they would otherwise never have known. This is actually just a logical thing to do. So they go out of town, they show up at this place of prayer, Um, and Lydia, it seems, was a regular part of that community. So we learn a little bit about her very quickly. Um, First, we learn her biography, the kind of external things that we learn about pretty quickly about anyone today. It's it's actually kind of funny, I think. It's as if someone walked up to her and said, hi, and where are you from, and what do you do, which are the things people say today, um, but not necessarily as much back then. So it's amazing to me how similar this is uh, to a quick, nice, great-to-meet-you conversation we have today. So her region, where she's from, it tells us, is Thyatira, which is actually a good ways from Philippi. So she's a long way from home. Um, But her region is known for being really good, um, having really good textiles, cloth, and dye. So when it tells us that she's a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira, it's the equivalent of saying she was a maker of cheesesteaks from Philadelphia, right? (laughs) So you get this. So she's a merchant. Um, It's actually possible that in this business that she started as a servant or a slave, and through being successful in the business, bought her freedom out of it and became, became a kind of self-sustaining free merchant. We don't know those details, but that happened to people like her often in this time period. Um, but I think she's, she's similar to very many of us. She's a long way from home with a successful career, and that's what's brought her there. The Jewish community that she's a part of is likely uh, probably mostly women. If there were more than 10 men in this community, they would have built a synagogue. 
um, and they haven't yet, so we can tell there aren't very many men involved in this community. And one of the things that leads to that is that actually in this time period, as, as you probably know, women didn't have a whole lot of uh, freedom in a lot of areas of their life in this time period. But one of the freedoms that they did have in Greek life was the freedom to make their own religious choices. And many women, therefore, had chosen to become Jews. And it was actually commented on by some historians because they're like, what is going on? Why are there all these women who have religious freedom and have chosen to become Jewish and follow other Mediterranean religions? So, so when Paul and Silas get there and they're speaking to women, it's probably because there are almost all women there. And so we don't know how long someone like Lydia has been a Jew. We do know that it's, she's been in this community long enough that once they know her, they really consider her a part of it, a worshiper of God. And we also know, therefore, that she's a little bit bicultural. So she's fluent and comfortable, both in this small Jewish community in her adopted town, as well as in the larger business community. And so I think that um, gives us a little bit of a sense of where she's coming from. So what I find really compelling about this is that she's actually really normal. There are a lot of people in the early Christian community, like Paul, who have these amazing, miraculous experiences. And sure, if you had an experience like that, you also would be at the center of this community, because everyone would be telling your story all the time, because it was just so miraculous and unbelievable. She, however, does not have any kind of miraculous story. She just has a very normal experience. In fact, the most interesting thing that the author can think of to tell us about her is where she's from and what she does for a living, which is pretty similar, I think, to a lot of us when we think about our own lives. So she's just like us. In fact, she has no idea that this is coming. So the first thing that I really want to note and the first fill in the blank in your sermon is that Lydia has no idea what's coming. She just shows up for a normal morning of prayer with her little Jewish community. The good news in this, I think, for us is that um, her part of this community is actually a, much, a very small part of a much bigger story of what God is doing. So in all of our lives, um, I want us to hear the good news here that our search for community, while it's a very small part of the things that are going on globally, on the things that are even going on in this city, it's a part of things that God really cares about. And so whether Lydia comes this morning particularly looking for a new community or looking to be at the center of a community that she's been around the edges of, we don't know. Um, but whether she's looking for it or not, God is bringing it to her. Um, and I think that's hopeful for us as we think about the kinds of things that we need and that are important to us in life. So we're going to watch as Lydia gets really involved in the edges of this community with Paul and Silas. How does she go from not knowing and not knowing Paul and Silas, because they're new, not having any idea what they're up to, to being a part of things at all? And it's pretty simple, um, partially because it's a really short story, so there's not a whole lot there. Um, but she has a history, so it tells us a couple of specific things. She has a history as a worshiper, she listens, she notices what God is doing, and she responds. Um, so there are a couple of different dynamics here, two in specific, that I want to draw our attention to. First, there's an interplay between what's going on inside of her internally and what we're able to see and what others see externally. On the very internal side, she listens, it tells us, and God opens her heart. And those are things that we, if we had been there with her, we would never know until, I guess, she told us or someone else told us later or we right, saw how it played out later. Very internal things. There are also some very external things. How she talks to them, what she says, um, the way that she responds. And I think this is worth noting because when, when we're watching a group of people come together, you see the same thing. It's a kind of classic group dynamics, right? There are internal things that are happening below the surface. And some people click really quickly, and some people take longer to get to know. And you don't really know why, and it's something that's happening below the surface. And in this case, something that's happening below the surface is spiritual. God is doing something below the surface, and Lydia is doing something below the surface. She's listening. God is working. So as we seek to go deeper into community, I want to encourage us to look for 
and to notice what's happening in that group spiritually. And the second dynamic that actually plays with the first dynamic is between what Lydia does and what God does. So Lydia takes some actions and God takes some actions. The author tells us that Lydia was a worshiper of God. Um, so again, like many of us, what I think this means is she's, she's spent some time seeking spiritual things. She's participated in a worshiping community. She's paid attention to what she thinks God is doing, and she's currently listening. And these are all the things that Lydia does, that the text tells us Lydia does. It's a foundation that she has. I think it's really notable, um, and I think it explains as we get going why things move so quickly for her, because she has this foundation coming into it. At the same time, as, as it notes her action and her history, it also really notes what God is doing, and it attributes some key things, to, specifically one key thing to God. The Lord opened her heart. So just as there are internal things and external things going on with Lydia, there are things that Lydia chooses to do and things that God does, and they're tied to each other. So Lydia recognizes what God is doing because she's had this spiritual experience, this spiritual history. She's been a worshiper of God, so she knows what it feels like to resonate with something deeply inside and to recognize God working in that. I think a lot of us get to a point, to a lot of points in our lives, where we resonate with something, we can tell something's going on internal, it's caught our attention, and we aren't sure what to do next. Lydia, however, responds. She's confident, she's decisive, she's not anxious, she's not cynical. Why? Because I think she has a history as a worshiper of God. She's sought spiritual things for a while. She takes a listening posture. She knows how to recognize when God is doing something, opening her heart to something. And when that happens she chooses to respond. So to summarize, how does Lydia go from a normal day where she's just shown up at the place of prayer with everybody else into getting involved in this new community? She gets connected by God's action, opening her heart, by her awareness of what God is doing, her listening, and then by her decisive response. And so she, in fact, has her whole house baptized. Um, baptism here is an example, again, of the external-internal dynamic. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it became a Christian symbol, but it was also in this time period a Jewish symbol, a Jewish experience. It's what you did to show externally that you were becoming a part of a new spiritual community. So think of it um, kind of like a graduation. You cross the stage. Crossing the stage is the external sign that you are done with your education. It's not like you've learned a lot by crossing the stage. Crossing the stage is not hard. You don't get a degree because you successfully crossed the stage, right? Crossing the stage is just a symbol that you got the degree because you did all the hard work that it deserved. Baptism, similarly, is an external symbol of something really important that's going on internally. And in this case, it's something really important that's going on with Lydia and her entire household. So in this one day, Lydia makes this huge commitment, and she joins this, this community, and it takes off from there. So I don't want to suggest that we need to make major decisions like that all the time, in a moment, in one day, instantly. But I do want to suggest that as much as we are able to become accustomed to recognizing what God is doing inside of us, we will be all the more prepared to act decisively to be a part of a good community when God brings that good community our way. So let me give you a very simple and very small example. I mean, I think things like this probably happen to us all the time. But a few weeks ago, I was at small group. We were catching up. Um, and so we were sharing prayer requests, which is a nice way of saying we were sharing all the things that we were frustrated with um, often or that weren't going well in our lives that we needed help with, right? Um, so someone in our small group was sharing um, a specific thing that she was trying to figure out and wanted some prayer for. And as I was listening, I had this kind of conversation going on in my head, right? And I was like, oh, I could actually help with that. Maybe I should offer to help with that. 
And then you have the other thought in your head which says, well, that, that might be kind of arrogant and kind of presumptuous. Like, maybe, maybe she doesn't actually want help. Maybe she actually just wants people to say, that's, that's difficult. We'll pray for you. We'll encourage you in this, right? As opposed to like trying to fix it for you. So you have this kind of voices going back and forth in your head, and I think this happens all the time. In this particular case, um, I, just, I also had a sense of God's voice saying, no, you should, you should just offer it. You should say something anyway. It can't hurt. It's not a big deal. Um, it'll just be a nice thing to say and, and see where it goes from there, and, and we'll see what God is doing from there. And that was really helpful to me because otherwise I would have just done what mostly we do is like kind of sit in the indecision, and then the moment passes and you don't say anything because you weren't ever confident and you never said anything, right? Um, so that's what I mean by this very simple internal sense of what God is doing that allows us to go deeper with community because we feel, we feel that sense of confidence that allows us to be decisive and know when we should say something and when we should press into things. And that's, that's as simple as I mean in this. So in our analogy so far, um, Lydia has gotten to the edge of the community. She is now a part of things, um, but she still hasn't moved to the heart of it. So she's in, um, but what gets her from being in and connected and kind of knowing and shaking hands and being nice to people to actually being the host of the entire community? So again, it's a very short story, and so there are only a couple of particular things to look at here, um, but there's a couple of critical actions. Um, in addition to getting her whole house baptized, she invites Paul and Silas to stay at her house. So one side note on baptism, um, this is also fairly normal, often um, in this time period, if, if she was married, and maybe she wasn't, maybe she was a widow, but if she was married, often the men were not involved in the religious life of the household at all. Um, so it was very much um, part of the women's freedom was that they could also invest in what their household was doing religiously and not just what they were doing themselves religiously. So the fact that she got her whole, um, house, her whole household baptized as a part of it would have been normal for her in her role in that household. So following that, she invites Paul and Silas to stay at her house. And so again, I want to see how practical this is. For Paul and Silas, it seems that they just really need somewhere to sleep. They have a very obvious need. Um, so similar, so it doesn't really tell us where they had been staying the first couple of nights that they were in town. We don't know that. Um, but apparently it's obvious enough that they need somewhere to stay that Lydia is confident in saying this from, from the very beginning. Um, so we see some vulnerability here from Paul and Silas in sort of making it clear whether that's intentional or not, that they need somewhere to stay. And I think that's really similar. Uh, Brad kind of alluded to this to last week. If you think about the kind of true self and the false self and being vulnerable and open with what you need. So it's not like Paul and Silas were pretending that they were staying at Lulu's mansion and everything was going great while they were actually sleeping on the street. Like they're very clear in whatever way they are that they actually need somewhere to stay. And since they need somewhere to stay, Lydia can jump on that. So their need actually is a really great invitation for Lydia. It's an opportunity for her. And I want us to catch that because I think often... Um, we can feel anxious about sharing our own needs because it does require some vulnerability, but sharing our own needs is actually potentially really helpful to people who are trying to get to know us better and to be a part of our community. So I want to see us to see that in Paul and Silas. Now that said, um, it's also common in this culture for families with means, like Lydia, who's been a successful merchant, to be patrons for religious causes that they support, which is a nice way of saying Lydia's invitation here is not out of the box. It's not totally unheard of. If this is something that she wants to be a part of, it would be a practical and normal thing for her to offer her home for them to stay there. So it's a very normal, regular thing for her to do, um, but it's also a really a significant risk for her because she doesn't, she's inviting them in instantly. She's putting herself out there. For all she knows, this new religious thing that Paul and Silas are doing has some rule about sleeping in tents in a field somewhere, and she's going to offer her house, and it's actually going to be offensive or it's you know, going to somehow break some religious code that she doesn't know about. 
So I want to catch both sides of that. She's being very uh, practical, realistic, normal, offering what she has, but she's also taking a risk and really putting herself out there. Simultaneously, completely normal and a significant risk. So how does Lydia get from the edges of this community into the heart of the community? To summarize, she gets to the heart of this community by seeing a need that they need somewhere to sleep, offering what she has, her house, and then inviting them and perhaps almost insisting, it sounds like, that they take advantage of it and that they come in. And that's, I think, the quick summary of how she moves from the, the edge of this community into the heart of this community. So I want to um, close with a couple of particular practical ways that I think we can do things that we can actually do uh, to follow Lydia's example and get deeper into communities that we want to be a part of. So the first thing is learning to listen and to hear God's voice. Sure, so it's a risk to invite other people in or to go deeper. Um, and in that risk, as I kind of shared with the small group story, in that risk, I think it can really help if we're comfortable and if we're familiar with God's voice. So in particular, we, I think it's just really helpful to have that kind of nudge of affirmation. Like God saying, yes, this person would really love it if you would follow up, if you would extend an invitation, if you would do whatever. That nudge is there. It's an opportunity for us. It's there as much as we are comfortable and get used to hearing God's voice. And so I think hearing God's voice can be really helpful to us in going deeper in community. So this isn't a sermon on listening prayer um, or how to discern what God is, is guiding you to do. There are plenty of other sermons on that that um, we've done here at this church in the past. There are great books about it. Um, there are people in this community who are actually really good at this, who you could learn from. So I want to encourage you. I think there are a lot of great reasons to learn how to understand God's voice and hear God's voice for yourself. Um, it's different for everyone. There's all kinds of practical and helpful things that that can help you do, um, spiritual things. But in particular, one of them is actually learning to better care for other people and then build deeper relationships with other people. Secondly, as we see from Paul and Silas, be open about your needs. Uh, so I recently finished a part-time grad school program at Penn, and one of my grad school classes, one of the three topics that they covered over the semester was luck, which I think is hilarious because it was a grad school class. But it's actually a very trendy topic, right? So there's lots of classes at Penn. At Penn, there's lots of classes on luck. Um, it's amazing. Um, what was, well, so just to be clear, how they defined luck was more the like focused on getting what you need. Like you got lucky because you found out about this great job that's the perfect fit for you. Not you got lucky because you put your number in the lottery and you won, right? So it's a certain kind of luck that they studied. And so in class, we actually did this exercise, um, getting to the point of how this relates to being open about our needs. Um, we did this exercise where we sat around in a circle and everyone shared something that they really practically, specifically needed. Because the science behind luck is that most of those fortuitous things that happen happen not because someone you already know can help you. They happen because someone else that that person knows can help provide exactly what you're looking for. So you find out about that great job you're looking for, not because a friend of yours is you know, hiring for that job, but because a friend of yours knows someone who's hiring for that job. And so what we were encouraged to do was share what we needed because it was a diverse group of people from a bunch of different programs and backgrounds. We had a huge kind of second level community of 
people we knew all across the city and probably across the world who might know things that we wouldn't know ourselves. So I actually think this exercise would be really valuable in a community like this. We're a really diverse community. People know a lot of different people here. And if you needed something, maybe no one here could help you. But the chances are someone else in this community would know someone who really could help you. So it was a very constructive exercise. It was really unique. It was very interesting. But what was not supposed to be a part of the exercise that actually happened was that the class got really close together. We felt much closer to each other as a class cohort because we had spent very intentional time sharing about things that we needed that we couldn't actually do ourselves, places where we needed help. And that's the takeaway here. I think as we share and are open about our needs, it, it leads us into being more deeply, it gives opportunity for other people to become more deeply connected to us, and then for us in turn to be more deeply connected to other people. The third practical tip that I want to give us is to be generous with our strengths. Um, I think this is actually a really good and fun one. Um, it's got to be easier to be generous with our strengths than to be open about our needs, right? Um, so if any of these practical pieces of advice are the easiest and the least threatening ways to start, I think this probably uh, should be at the top of the list, right? One of the, uh, going back to, to classes for an example, one of the classes I took in college that was really miserable and awful um, was Greek. I, I took it because I needed to uh, pass a language requirement, and I'm really bad at languages. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to learn. Uh, and what, what I didn't know in signing up for Greek, so I assumed that if you, like, if you knew Latin, for instance, you would not also take Greek. Why would you want to know both Latin and Greek? I don't know. But what actually turned out to be true was that no one took Greek unless they already knew Latin. Surprise! Welcome to Greek class. There's like 15 of you, and there are three of you who don't already know Latin. So the homework the first night was to memorize the declension table, which was similar to the Latin declension table except for ABC. I don't even know what a declension is, right? Because I did not take Latin or any other language that had declensions, whatever, in any case. Um, so, so this class was particularly hard for me. So the three of us that hadn't taken Latin before became very good friends um, because we were all drowning. And the other two of them were re actually really good at languages. Um, and are, they're both really good at memorization, which is a lot of what learning a language is. And so they were very generous with their time in studying with me and helping me come along and keep up with them and then keep up with the rest of the class. And through that, one of them became, I mean, they both became really good friends. Um, one of them actually lived in, was one of the reasons that I moved to Philly. Um, and the other one, after she uh, ended up living in a house with a bunch of us, meeting one of my other friends, becoming really close to her. And now live, she lives in the Middle East and my other friend lives in Minneapolis and they see each other every year. And they're, they're, they have both have kids that are two, three, four, or five years old, and their kids have kind of grown up seeing each other every year, and it all started because we took Greek together, and we were desperate, and we needed help, and they were generous. Um, in particular, this one, these two friends of mine were generous with their time and their skill in helping me learn how to learn Greek. So, all to say, um, what, what is it in your life that you have an abundance of, and who else would love to have a share of that thing? Maybe not even because they need it, maybe just because they would like it, and it would be great, and they would appreciate it. And so that's our third tip. Fourth, um, I want to take a cue from Lydia here and challenge us to always be inviting. So this is um, the other, kind of the flip side of the, of the generous way to look at Lydia's journey and what she does, right? She's both very practically generous with something, something she has, but she also really takes a risk in inviting people in when she doesn't quite know how it's going to turn out. So this would be the equivalent of coming to a church like this for the first time and, you know, meeting some people who are nice and they shake your hand and they say welcome after church. And then actually saying, hey, well, would you like to go to lunch after church? I'd love to get to know people better. As opposed to waiting for them to invite you to go to lunch. Right? It's similar to like if you're at dinner with friends 
and the conversation is nice and you're talking about the weather and you know, who's moved recently and what you're doing for the Pope visit and you kind of wish you knew them better and you want to go deeper and actually being the first one to get into that and to ask a deeper question, to offer to pray for them, to seek what's going on and try to figure out how you can more deeply be a part of their life. So a really good friend of mine from high school um, has given me this advice uh, pretty much consistently for the last 10 years, um, whether I wanted it or not. Um, and so in particular, I remember I was having a conversation with him describing how I was frustrated about how long it was taking to get to know people um, when I was new somewhere. And I, I don't remember if this was, I think I was new in Philly, and I can't remember if I was talking about work or being at church or I, something. Um, so I was telling him, I, I, you know, I, was, I, I went and visited whatever, some group of people that I had visited, and the people were nice, but no one really talked to me. And like everyone said hello, and it was really nice, and then as soon as they kind of did their pleasantries, everyone sort of went along their way, and I was like, well, I didn't really get to know anyone here. And so I was telling him this, and what I was looking for was a really nice, empathetic, like, oh, I'm sorry, it's really discouraging, it takes a long time to get to know people, like, hang in there, you know, it'll, it'll be better next time, keep at it, something like that. Um, so instead, what I received was the same advice I had received five times before, so I probably should have known this was coming already. Um, but what, what my friend asked me was, well, how many people did you invite to something? I was like, well, I didn't invite anyone to something, I just met them. I don't know them, I wanted them to invite me to something. Um, but I think his advice really stands. And he's always told me, if, if you want to be a part of a community, then you have to act like the host. I think that's really challenging. And I don't want to use that to make excuses, especially um, for those of us who, who are and have been a part of this community for a long time. If you've been coming to this church for a while, this is not an excuse for you to not invite other people and make them invite you instead, right? <laughs> um, but I think it is, it is something that Lydia does and does really well and is something that we should learn from. Um, She's known these people for like a couple of hours, and she invites them to her house. Um, and she has them basically move in for a couple of days and has the whole group stay with her while their kind of key leaders are in prison. So she dove right in. She insisted. All of which is to say, don't wait until you're already at the heart of a community to then invite others in to join you. Start when you're on the edge, looking at what looks like the heart where everyone else is, and they're already there, but sure, invite them into kind of the heart of the community, even though you're not quite really at the heart. And suddenly you find yourself in the middle of things in being the host that you wanted to be. So um, taking those four tips, um, I want to take a little bit of time as we close here just to reflect on those and on some questions that I think Lydia brings up to us. Um, so here we're going to bring up a couple of questions, and I just want to take a few minutes. Um, and I think these are great questions that we can ask ourselves Anytime you find yourself somewhere new or the community that you were a part of has moved around you and you're no longer as deeply into it as you wanted to be, ask yourself these questions. What is God doing here? How can I be honest about the things that I need? Where can I be generous with my strengths? And who can I invite to join me? So we're going to take a minute or two to reflect on these and to just kind of wrap our heads around it and see kind of from what Lydia has done and the questions I think she's led us to, how they might apply to some of the situations that we're in in our life, and then listen to maybe see where God is nudging us as a part of a couple minutes of reflection, and then we'll move into the rest of our service.
All right, so I'll just uh, close us with uh, just a prayer of blessing, um, and then we'll move into the rest of the service. God, I just ask that you would help us to see what you are doing when we're with people that are new and that we want to get to know better. I ask that you would help us to have confidence, confidence to be open about what we need, um, to be generous with everything that you have given us, and that you would uh, just give us strength to invite people in and to invite them to be a part of what you're doing. In your son's name, amen.